Change is something everyone and everything experiences. It is relentless. It can get you down, yet in the midst of changes, there is someone who never changes. My husband, Dave Wurtson, begins our study titled, The Never-Changing Powerful One, sharing about our wedding photo album. On New Year's Eve, some of my friends came up with an idea that it would be a great idea to go and to search for our wedding pictures. Now, our 25th anniversary was this year. We got married December 23rd, 25 years ago. I know it's hard to look at me and realize that I've now been married 25 years, but I got married when I was 15. No, seriously, I was not that old, but I was a lot older than that. And uh, we could not find our wedding pictures. In fact, Mary was furious with me. I mean, she kept saying, where are those pictures? And did my mom get them? And where are they? And I don't know what she thought someone was going to do with them. But finally, I said, no, Mary, I know for sure that you have them. So she dug a little bit digger and deeper and dug a little bit harder. And finally, she found the wedding pictures. And she took out our album. Now, you have to realize that 25 years ago, this album was new. And you can see now that it is not new at all. And uh, the, the Kodak picture, you know, Kodak pictures are supposed to never get blue and green, but these have kind of gone the way of what pictures do. The thing that got me the most is as they passed the pictures around the table, somebody looked at this picture right here and they said, now I recognize Mary, I can recognize Mary, but who is this guy standing next to her? Now, that really hurt my feelings. I mean, you know, I haven't changed at all in 25 years, you know. I know that Mary hasn't changed. She's just as beautiful as ever, but, but I haven't changed either. Anybody ever feel like that? And what I began to realize, this friend looked at me and said, you know, to be honest with you, if you were not standing in the place of the groom there, and I do recognize Mary, I wouldn't even recognize you. I've changed. So have you. In fact, all you need to do is go to a high school reunion. You find out that you think, man, everyone will recognize me. And everyone's coming up to you and looking at you and scratching their head and saying, who are you? Every single one of you are changing. And that's hard on us. It's hard on every one of us. In fact, change is a human condition. What I want to talk to you about today, though, is the fact that we need to get in touch with somebody who will never, never change. And what you all agree on, you say, well, Dave, some of us have watched you change so that we know that you change, and that's why you can't trust me. It's why you can't depend upon me, because you need to get in touch with somebody who never changes. Leadership will come, and it will go. And if you in this life, you know, flow, you know, you're kind of like riding the current of, man, I really believe in this person, and this person is going to be our answer, and, and now it's going to happen. You're going to be disillusioned. And one of the things I want to get across to you today is that I want you to be able to touch base. I want you to be able to get in touch with someone who is changeless. Someone who never, never changes. I wish I could tell you that I was like the rock of Gibraltar. In other words, that you look at the rock of Gibraltar when you were little kids with that Prudential ad, and now you look at it today and it still looks the same. In fact, we got to ski in Taos, New Mexico, and I noticed that the mountain hadn't changed in two years. It hadn't changed at all. But you know what? I had changed. Because I had spent four days chasing my son Joel down the mountain. And I thought, you know, man alive, and I, I'm still 19, but I'm not. Because I've changed. The mountain hasn't changed, but I have. And every one of you are in exactly that same boat. Every one of you are changing. And what you were when you got married, one day you're going to be getting out dusty pictures and your kids will be teasing you about where in the world did they do that ancient photography where they put the photographer in that black cloth and kind of shot a half an hour picture you know, through this big black box. That's the way you're, the, your kids are going to look at you about the good old days. And that's going to become disillusioning to you. As we open our Bible this morning to Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet Isaiah focuses our attention on someone who is changeless. Someone who 25 years from now will still be the same. Someone who 100 years from now will still be the same. Someone who 100 years in the past was still the same. And Isaiah chapter 40 is a passage that enters our existence in a very vulnerable time. You see, Isaiah chapter 40 was written by a prophet who targeted an audience. He really wrote this stuff. Isaiah the prophet, I believe, wrote this chapter. But Isaiah the prophet targeted an audience that was still about 150 years ahead of him. 
And it's like through the power of the Spirit, in fact, he looks so accurately into the future that most liberal Old Testament scholars have to date this section about 535 or 540, about several hundred years after the time of Isaiah, because he's able to look forward to He's able to look forward to a time called in ancient Israel the Babylonian captivity. Let me just review it for you so you'll understand. In fact, chapter 39 talks about King Hezekiah inviting Babylonian envoys and showing them all the treasure of the temple and all the gold and the silver and, and all of his battlements and all of his armaments and all of the prosperity of Jerusalem. And Isaiah the prophet says, what have you done? And Isaiah and Hezekiah says, I've shown the Babylonians, which at that time in Isaiah's time were just a little mediocre city. The city of Babylon was just struggling. It had its ups and downs throughout the history of the ancient Near East. But in the time of Hezekiah the king, about the, the 8th century, Babylon was a nothing city. And so Hezekiah thought nothing of showing the treasures. But Isaiah said something very significant. You have done wrong. There will come a day when your sons and your descendants will be carried into captivity by the nation of Babylon. And Isaiah chapter 40 picks up that crescendo and that theme that the Israelites were going to be sold into captivity. And so as we begin, I want you to stop and I want you to try to identify yourself with a people who have gone away from home. Have you ever gone away from home, ever gone to a foreign country? Have you ever began to live there? You know, at first when you go there, you're all excited and it's a big new thing. But then what starts to happen after just a few weeks? You've been there a few weeks and the excitement wears off. And what do you want to do? You want to go home. I never forget working order of life. We've had kids, some of the little kids that we'd taken to camp. It was the very first time they were ever away from home. And you know what they would start to say after they were there a few hours? I want to go home. And all of you in this room can identify with that cry of being somewhere away from home and you want to go home. Just imagine being a people, there's no home to go back to. Because the Babylonians had as a stated policy when they conquered a country, like the Assyrians, they would transplant everybody. They felt that the way that you held an empire together was to keep all the ethnic groups separated and keep them away from their homelands. And so in 605 B.C. and then again in 586, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, where Isaiah was running to several hundred years previously, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judea, he took the people and transplanted them about 556 miles away from home, almost 600 miles away from home. And Isaiah in chapter 40 is running to a people that's away from home and they want to go home, but they're never going to be able to go home from a human standpoint. Because the most powerful nation in the world, the imperial power of the world at that time says, you're not ever going to be able to go home. You're going to stay in Babylon forever. And these Israelites started raising their kids because they were there for more than 70 years. They were there for a whole two generations. And they raised kids. And I could see teenagers talking to their parents. And their parents were trying to teach them about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And these teenagers would say, why should we believe in Yahweh God? Why should we believe in the God of Moses? Man, the God that only came in, we've been living in Babylon and we see these beautiful, gigantic uh, boulevards that they build in the city of Babylon. And we see them at their festivals. Instead of having Christmas in ancient Babylon, they would have a Marduk day. And they would build a gigantic statue out of wood and they would coat it with beautiful gold. And they would set up, instead of having like a rose ball floats, like we see on New Year's Day, and all, or like the Macy's Parade on Thanksgiving, in ancient Babylon, they would build their parades with all their gods, and they would be covered with gold and silver and bronze and copper. And I want you to imagine gigantic statues that would, that would reach maybe 100 feet into the air, 80, 90 feet, and they would carry these idols through the streets, and the soldiers of Babylon would be around those idols, and all the people would sing, and they would sing, instead of praise to Yahweh, they would sing, oh, hail King Marduk. Oh, hail divine Marduk. Marduk is the God of the world. He's conquered all the people. And these Israelite kids would say, why should we believe in the God of the Bible? What would their parents say? What could their parents say? And that's what Isaiah chapter 40 is about. It's about the tension of being a people that's been demolished, that's been destroyed, that's been sold into captivity. And it's a people that's struggling to maintain their faith. Maybe some of you are trying to struggle to maintain your faith 
in the biblical God today. And one of my purposes is to, is to be able to be you to the Spirit to cause your spirit to lift up the eyes of your heart and to be able to focus on the only God that's really worth praising, the only God that's worth really contemplating, the only God that's really worth serving. And sometimes in life, just like in the ancient people of Israel that were in captivity in Babylon, sometimes it doesn't make good human sense to still worship God. It looks like other gods have taken over. Gods of power, gods of materialism, gods of of ancient Babylon that still permeate our world. And you can say, Dave, why should I worship the Bible? Why should I mean worship the God of the Bible? And Isaiah chapter 4 is going to give us some really good readings. First of all, he begins with probably one of the most important readings of all. And it's the whole focus of what we want to talk about today. Because you need comfort. You need comfort. This passage is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It begins like this. Comfort ye, comfort ye. If you've got a King James Version, I still like the old English there. It says, comfort ye, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. You know, whenever you speak to an audience of human beings, you can be absolutely sure your heart will connect with their heart if you begin with those words. I want to comfort you. I want to comfort you. I want to comfort you, my people. The ancient Israelites in captivity in Babylon needed comfort. They needed someone to be able to bring them a word of hope. They needed someone to be able to bring them a word of consolation. They needed someone to come alongside them and say that it's not hopeless. And some of you this morning think that it is. It looks like life has just had everything drained away from you. Have any of you ever just suddenly, you know, you went through a day and you just felt like crying? You ever have a day like that? In fact, I spent one of those days probably on Friday. You ever feel that when you go on vacation and it's all done, the four days go by too quickly? And you realize that what you looked forward to all that time is now gone? And you just feel like, ugh, what's the use? Anybody ever feel that way? Sure. And some of you say, Dave, you know, I have to laugh at you. You know, you think, man, you suffered the loss of losing four days of vacation and it's gone and you had a blast doing it, had a blast with your son. I've lost a lot more than that and I know that. And I want you to know that every human heart sometimes feels like going through a day and you're, some of you don't even know why you're crying, but you're crying. Because you've lost something. And the prophet comes to us, you look at Isaiah chapter 40, and this prophet comes to you this morning and says, comfort you, I want to comfort you. Comfort you, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and pro- proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sins have been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double For all of her sins. What the Lord is telling his ancient people is that he wants them to be comforted because the time of captivity is ended. He wants them to be comforted because now the Lord God of heaven, the King of heaven and earth, is going to speak tenderly to their hearts. And he's saying to his people of the Old Testament, You have now put in your 70 years. You have put in your 70 years of what you might call hard labor. The idea of paying double for your sins is that your bill has been paid in full and now you can go home. Ancient Babylon prided itself on the idea of building gigantic roads and building these beautiful highways all over the ancient Near East. And the next few verses begin to talk to us about how the Lord is going to use one of these highways to bring his people home. Look what it says, some famous verses you've all heard before. A voice, the prophet doesn't even tell us who he is, a voice of one calling. What does he call? He says, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. What is it talking about there? You've all seen that happening between Cedar Hill and Midlothian. Ever since I moved to Midlothian, they've been working on 67. It started out as just a two-lane road when I first came down here. And then they made it a service road where we had four lanes and we could go either way. And we thought that was great. Just in a few weeks, we're going to open up the whole thing. And man, we'll have beautiful four-lane highway, super highway, all the way into Dallas. And you've all seen them bring in those heavy machinery, those big tractors and the, and the graders and those big front-end loaders. And they take dirt from this side and they move it over to this side. And when they get all done, we don't even think anything about it. But they just move tons and tons of earth and they pour tons and tons of concrete. Why? So that we can blast on a smooth, beautiful surface of concrete. And we can cut off about two minutes off our trip to Dallas. (laughs) All governments, down to the centuries, governments have to build roads. 
The kingdom of Babylon prided itself about the road that they built throughout the ancient Near East, just like the Romans would many years later. And what the prophet is saying is that there's a road between Babylon and Jerusalem. And the Lord is saying the initial idea of this prophecy is the prophet's crying out, my people that are in exile, God has now forgiven you. He's like a dad who you really blew it. You really hurt. Like on the commission last night, they did, you know, sometimes TV is trash, but sometimes it's really good. On the commission last night, they told a marvelous story about a son that in order to get in with the in-group in his school, stole some CDs. And his father's a commissioner, obviously, because it's called the commish. And the policeman picked him up. The shopkeeper brought this boy in, having no idea it was a commission's son. And the commish comes out, and his own son had been picked up for shoplifting. What did he do? Unlike most parents, he didn't cover it up. He didn't say it was no big deal, even though he had the power to just let his son... In fact, the guy said he wasn't even going to press charges. Instead, the commish took his son, and he put him in the tank for a full day, all night long. And he told his staff that were in charge of the jail to watch him, make sure he didn't hurt himself, fed him well, but he made his son sit in jail because his son just looked at him and said, it's no big deal, Dad. All I did was take a few CDs. And that dad turned away and said, it is a big deal. It's a big deal. He let his son just sit in jail. But in the whole program, with a lot of other plots weaving in at the end of the story, you have the dad go into his son's room and his son can barely look up at his dad. And his dad comes over and he gives him a big hug. And the son says, Dad, I promise I'll never do it again. And the dad says, you, you better not. And then, it's, then the father says, well, it's because I made you stay in jail for more than 24 hours. He says, no. He says, I never want to see that look in your eye again. I never want to see you hurt like that again. And that's what Isaiah 40 is all about. It's about, a, it's about a daddy in heaven who's been estranged from his kids because they've stolen, they've done evil things, they've done wrong things. And now they've had to be in jail for 70 years for it. But now the father is saying that the hard labor's passed. And I've prepared a highway and it's going to be time for you to go home. And you all know how ancient Israel went home with Zerubbabel and with Ezra, with Nehemiah. If you don't, you can read those stories in those books of the Old Testament called Ezra and Nehemiah. But you say, well, Dave, what does that have to do with us? Well, the New Testament takes the passage before me and puts it into a much bigger category. It talks about not just a highway that's prepared for the children of ancient Israel to move from Babylon and go back to live in Jerusalem. Instead, these words are called out by a Judean He's, a, he's like a mountain man. I like to think of him as a mountain man of the first century Israelites. And this guy comes out dressed in skins, eating locusts and wild honey. He's down there at the northern, at the northern end of the Dead Sea just as the Jordan spills in. And he begins to, begins to holler out in the wilderness, repent, turn away from your sins. Why is he saying that? Because he's preparing a highway. This time, not between Babylon and Jerusalem, but he's preparing a highway into human hearts. You see, every one of your hearts are like rough terrain. It's kind of like that ad, you know, where they bring the Jeep and, you know, the first guy comes up with a truck, a blazer or something and says, how do I get to Bakersfield or wherever it is? The guy says, well, you go down here, you go down here, you go down here, and you go on this superhighway and eventually you get there about 12 hours later. The person comes up in her Jeep and, this, you know, this girl says, how do I get there? He says, right across the mountains. The truth of the matter is that almost every one of your hearts are impassable mountains, rocks and stones and and hardness, and you can't get through. And John the Baptist began to hammer at the heart, the human hearts of the people around him that were full of boulders and full of unreceptivity. What was he doing? He says, I'm preparing a highway in the human heart. And this time, the highway is built. Notice Isaiah says, I'm going to build a highway for the Lord. You see, the ancient Babylons built highways for their gods. They built beautiful streets in the city of Babylon, like I was just telling you about earlier, so they could have their gigantic parades and let Marduk come in in his great big glory and splendor. John the Baptist cried out in human hearts to build a road in your heart so that the living God could ride into your heart and he could be extolled and he could be glorified and he could be praised instead of having your heart be stony and rebellious and hard. 
And what these words are, are used for in the New Testament is, is that John the Baptist worked in the first century and the Holy Spirit down through the centuries has been working in human hearts to get every one of our hearts to become a place where God is on parade. Where the Lord God of heaven is extolled and praised and glorified. You know what? None of us do that on our own strength. None of us can do that. All of us have a heart that needs to be melted. All of us have a heart that needs to be softened. And that's what the prophet wants to do. In fact, that's what God wants to do in your own heart right now. He wants your heart to become tender and pliable. My heart becomes hard. My heart, especially when I feel hurt, especially when I feel angry, my heart gets to be like stone. And it doesn't want to hear the word of God, and it doesn't want to praise God, and it doesn't want to sing. And you're all like that. And you all go through time in your life where, where your heart isn't a highway that, that, can, that can allow God free access into your, into your life. And so the words come to us today. I'm going to prepare a highway for the Lord. And John the Baptist did that. In fact, one day, the Lord himself, it says, I'm going to prepare a highway for the Lord. The Lord himself walked down from Galilee, walked down to the Jordan River, and John the Baptist saw him coming. And you remember that stirring moment in John's gospel. When the voice crying in the wilderness pointed out, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You see, there's a much bigger captivity than the children of ancient Israel faced. They were able to pay for their sins the 490 years of living in the land. We could never pay for our sin, for all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. And the wage of the sin is, you know it, death. And so Isaiah 40 speaks about a much more serious need for forgiveness. And when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, he was saying, Who takes away the sin of the world. And the incredible story of the Bible is that the ancient Israelites were able to pay for their sin by 70 years of captivity in Babylon. None of us could ever pay for our sin. Instead, the Lamb of God, God's Son, was the Lord who came to this earth. And he paid the double debt. He paid the full debt for our sins so that we could go free. That's the good news. That's why the voice cries out. That's a good news for every one of you, no matter what you've experienced this past week, no matter what you might have gone through. God, like a, like a tender, loving, compassionate Father in heaven, is coming to you and says, based upon my son's work for you, you're my tender, beloved children. I want you to be comforted. I want to meet your needs. Now, I throw my hand up at this time at this, and I say, how can I count on that? Because some of you right now, you say, well, man, you know, there were, there were times when I really counted on people. There were times when I really thought people wouldn't change. In fact, I, you know, you go back to your wedding vows. You know, I look back at these ancient pictures, and I remember the vows that Mary and I made. One of the great struggles of my own life in the past is, is that I often participate in these kinds of ceremonies with these kinds of pictures. But you know what? Some of us build our lives on this. Some of the young people that we talk to, they're living their life to try to find that one person that's going to walk through life with them. And yet, what does life do? Suddenly, like in my own sister's life, my own sister got married just like I did a few years before. My sister's husband went to the same school where Mary went. He took the same Bible courses that Mary took. He was raised in a Christian family. My sister and her husband went to the mission field for two terms. He was a gifted pianist. He worked in Christian radio, kind of like what we do with Truth Encounter. And my sister had an album just like this, but after, they came, after their second term in the mission field, they came back from the mission field, they arrived in Florida, and my sister's husband says, I'm gone. I'm leaving. He changed. His character changed. In fact, unlike some of you, like in our own church family, we've had family that have lost families because of death a spouse because of death, and oh, how we need to pray for it. What a loss. And people change. They become weak, and their diseases can take their life. My sister's husband came to her one day and says, I'm gone. After counseling, they heard his counselor with a very dear friend of mine. There came a moment in time where my friend said to my brother-in-law, please turn away from the, this sin. Please turn away from this false lifestyle. And my brother-in-law said, No. So if any of you think it's bad, I want you to know that as I speak to you this morning, right within my own family, I know how bad it can get. 
I know what it's like to have my sister sit on the couch and take wedding pictures and just want to feel like, believe your two precious little blonde-headed kids. People change. People change. And that's why none of you can trust just human beings, because they all can change. And they're always going to let you down. The very first thing that the prophet says after he talks about the need for comfort and he talks about how there is forgiveness because, of the, because the Yahweh comes to us, the Lord comes to us. He goes on in the rest of Isaiah chapter 40 and he spells out three essential characteristics of this Lord who has come to us. And these three essential characteristics are so important because they are the basis of our comfort. You see, God doesn't just put his arm around you and says, I want to help you, and doesn't come with credentials. So many, of it, so many times I feel that's what I do. I come to somebody in the midst of tragedy and I put my arms around them and I want to comfort them, but all that I do is I'm just present because I don't have the strength, I don't have the insight, and I don't have the ability. There's no way that I can really comfort them. But I want you to know there is one that can comfort you, I guarantee it. The very first reason why he can comfort you is because unlike us, he never, never changes. Verse 6, the voice cries again. The first call of the voice is, prepare a highway for the Lord, and the Lord has come. And there's comfort because he's come and given us, given us uh, forgiveness. But the voice comes again in verse 6 and says, cry out. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry out? And look what it cries out. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Because the breath of the Lord blows upon them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You know what the prophet's saying is? If you want to be comforted, you need to grab a hold of. You need to put your confidence in one whose word is always the same. Whose word never changes. See, a person's word is connected with their heart. And what the scripture's telling us is that there's, there is an ultimate God in the universe who when he gives us his word on something, it never changes. And for your own good, you desperately need to adore and to believe in and to trust the living God whose word is true. You know why? Because everything else is like grass. I wish I could tell you that I was like the rock of Gibraltar, but I'm not. I'm like grass. You ever stop and think about that illustration? See, what is grass like? Here in Texas, blue bonnets, for example. They come out of the ground, a tender shoot. You know, beautiful. They, they suddenly grow, and then there's this beautiful, beautiful blue you all over the Texas countryside. But if you want to go in, if you want to go and see the blue bonnets in all their glory, you want to go down to the hill country and see it, what do you have to do? Can you say, oh, I'll, I'll let maybe three or four weeks go by, and then I'll go and look at them. Can you do that? No. You know what the scripture is saying? It says that all of us, every one of us, are like blue bonnets in the spring. And the, and the glory rises like the flower to the field. And any political leader that forgets the lesson of Isaiah chapter 40, any business leader that rejects and doesn't believe in the, in the message of Isaiah 40 is not in touch with reality, because it's true. Nebuchadnezzar was a blue bonnet in 605. But he died. And in 536... The whole Babylonian Empire was gone. Because governments come and go like the flower of the field. You know what? People come and go like the flower of the field. My son Joel is 19 and I'm 45. And I like to think that I'm 19, but I spent four days chasing Joel down the mountain. You know what? You know what? I'm like a flower of the field. And I begin to fade. And that doesn't mean that I don't take care of my body and it doesn't mean that I don't do exercise or anything, but you know what? I don't have the strength that Joel has now. We went to a hotel and we were bench pressing. Joel takes about 225 pounds, pushes it up. Man, I get underneath it, nothing happens. But there was a day when it would move. And some of you say, well, man, you know, I'm going I'm to hold on to it. My dad's one of the strongest men that I know. And my dad, in his mid-70s, fell in love with a woman, and I guarantee it, that woman thought he was probably in his early 50s. And she fell in love too deep when she found out he was 75. It was too late. But you know what? When I'm with my dad, every time now when I go to see him, years, age, 
None of it's going to run away from it. Gray hair, hair falling out. And that is really depressing news unless you have been able to get by the grass mode. You've gotten able to face your human grass mode and you get a hold of one who never, never changes. You see, what the scripture is saying is that God will never grow weak. He will never grow impotent. He will never grow old. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the incredible thing is the book of Hebrews says Jesus the one that became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're talking about what we call in theology the immutability of God, the changelessness of God. I want to share something with you about that. Often philosophy presents an idea like God as a static, immovable, uh, impersonal, like, just like the rock of Gibraltar. And that's not what the scripture is saying. The scripture presents the idea of the, of the changelessness of God, not that he lived in some untouchable, unreachable place far away from you. God grieves with you. He moves with you. He, he, he's influenced by you. He cares about you. He responds to your prayers. But you know what the text is telling us? is unlike the grass that flowers for a time and then falls and dies and sometimes doesn't keep its word and sometimes doesn't come through for us. It says the eternal God's word remains the same forever and ever and ever. You know, the moment as a five-year-old kid where I heard, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that anyone that believes in him should never perish but have ever eternal life. I believed that when I was five. You know, at 45, the same God comes to me and says, David, I love you just the same. And because you believed in me, you become your son. And you know what? That's never, never changed. Dads and mom can walk away sometimes, just like my sister's husband did. But the Lord Jesus never walks away. Never walks away from us because he never, never changes. The second thing I want you to realize about God, first of all, that he never, never changes, and therefore you can depend upon his word. And you can always count on him to come through for you. Ultimately, he will fulfill his promises to you. The second thing I want you to realize is that God not only never changes, but God never runs out of gas. God never grows weak. I share with you about skiing Kataus and Joel and I on the third day were there. Uh, we were about halfway down the mountain and Joel says, I've got to take care of some business and why don't you go up and make a run, come and meet me at the cheerlift and then we'll go up and meet some of our friends who are with us. I said, great. So I went up to the top of the mountain and I decided that the shortest way down was to go down this double diamond black. And as I started to go down, I saw a sign that said, I think it's just something about sequia snow or something, which I, I don't even think that's the right terminology because I didn't know what sequia snow, snow was then. I know what it is now. I didn't know. It said, be careful, expert things, sliding conditions. Well, I didn't think anything about it. Man, I've been skiing, you know, in relatively the same area all week long. I said, man, sliding condition, what's the big deal? So I started weaving through the trees. At Taos, when they say double diamond black, it means double diamond black. It means you're falling off cliffs. And I, I, I was really proud of myself because I made it maneuvering down through these pine trees, jumping over these moguls. I thought, I'm doing really, really good. I broke out in the clear. It's still like this, almost straight down. I said, but man, I got it down. I'm going to be down there with Joel. We're going to be able to go meet our friend. And suddenly I lost it. And I dropped a ski, and I dropped another ski, and I dropped my poles, and I was flying down the mountain quicker on my butt than I'd been skiing all week long on my skis. And I'm thinking, you know, this is really crazy. I've never had a lesson in how do you stop yourself when you're flying down a double diamond black on your butt. And I'm saying, Lord, people have been killed by running into trees here at Taos, usually four a year. Help me not to be one of those four. I finally stopped. By the, I don't know how I stopped. Finally, I, I think I planted my feet and I just stopped in, in this just real, real deep snow. And I looked up the mountain and here I have, my skis are 100 yards above me. One of them is. Then 75, about 25 yards further, there's another ski. Then there's a rock that I barely missed by the grace of God. Then I have one pole and then I have my other pole. I'm looking up at a football field, only this football field goes straight up with bumps all over it. And I've got to figure out how in the world I'm going to get these, how am I going to get my poles, how am I going to get my skis? And I'm real macho, says, I'm going to climb up there and get it. So I started climbing. And it's about 10,000 foot in altitude, so I climbed about 25 yards, and I go, <laughs> I climbed about 25 yards in the deep snow, I climbed 30 yards, and I slid back 35 yards. 
So I started in again. I'm thinking, man, Joel's going to kill me. It's going to take me hours to get my skis. So I started climbing again, back up again. Climbed up about 40 yards, recovered one of my poles. I thought that would help me. It made matters worse. So I, I had to get down on all fours again. I'm climbing up this thing. Then I slid again. Finally, after doing this for about 25 minutes, I began to realize, you know what? I cannot make it to those skis. I don't have the strength to make it. You know, sometimes life is like that. You feel like you're on a slippery slope. And when you're young and you're strong, you feel like, man, I know that I can macho this out. But you know what? I guarantee you, sometimes you're going to take a spill in life on the slope of life, and you're going to slide, and there's going to be absolutely no way that you have the strength to bail yourself out. So I lie back in the snow, and I'm scratching my head going, Lord, what in the world can I do? Suddenly up above me, a couple of skiers come. They see me in this heap of snow, like the abominable snow band. And they say, do you need some help? Yes, I need some help. The guy yelled, oh, I see your poles. And he comes whipping down, picks up one of my skis, puts it on his shoulder, puts up the other ski on his shoulder, skis down through the black without any of his poles, carrying my skis, picks up my poles, whips through the blacks down this incredibly steep incline, does a side slip right in front of me, gives me my skis and says, do you need these? I said, yeah, I need them. <laughs> God has the skill and God has the power to get every one of you back up on your feet. And you'll never be able to do it in your own strength. As long as you think you're self-reliant, as long as you think you're strong, you are denying the biblical revelation that you're just grass. And in this life, every single one of us have to come to the place where, where we slide long enough and we slide hard enough that we get in a position where we realize, I don't have the power to get out of this one. And I don't have the power to be able to meet my needs. And then God can pick up our skis and he can help you. In fact, you know what he does? Last time we went skiing there, we took a girl with a ski and she took a, just a few brief, few feet of skiing and Trina had wiped out her knee. Really busted her knee. The pain just hit her and then it went away, but she'd really hurt it badly. Then a few seconds, a ski instructor with that cross on his back arrived at the scene and looked at the knee and realized it was bad. He says, I'm going to have you down the mountain in a few seconds. And he bundled Trina up, put her in this sled, covered her all up with blankets, tied her all in. And the ski instructor with a cross on his back just took off in just a few seconds he was down the mountain. That's what God wants to do in your own life. Jesus is always the one that comes to us with a cross on his back. He's the one that forgave us, took care of the greatest problem that we could ever face. Jesus has already taken care of the greatest problem that you could ever have, and that's the threat of hell, the threat of being separated from him forever. Let Jesus be the one that picks you up, because he not only never changes, but he always has the power, the omnipotence, to meet your need. You say, Dave, how do I know that? Look what it says in the next few verses. It says in verse 10, See the sovereign law, Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See his reward is with him, his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. That's what he wants to do for you right now. He wants to be like a shepherd that will gather you in his arms and no matter what problem you might facing, no matter what you might need to be comforted in, he wants to gather you in his arms like a tender shepherd would gather a sheep that's been hurt. You say, Dave, how do I know he can meet my needs? How do I know he has the strength to do it? Look what it says. Who has measured? The writer just asked a series of questions and I want you to think about this. If you wonder whether God has the power today to meet your needs, it says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. Did you read what we just said? Have you ever been down to the Pacific Ocean? You ever go out to L.A., go to the beach, and look at the mighty Pacific. And what I want you to picture, I want you to picture God wading out into the ocean, and he reaches down, and just like you at one time or another might have, when you didn't have a cup or a bucket, you, you want to transfer water from a bucket to another bucket, and you're reaching and you cup your hand, and you fill your hand with water, and you bring it over here, and all of you have done that at a stream or something. 
You know what the writer is saying? It says that God reaches down into the oceans of planet Earth and he puts the ocean in the palm of his hand and he can nestle the ocean just like you would nestle a a handful of water. That's the kind of God you have. That's how powerful he is. That's how omnipotent he is. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? God can measure the oceans in in the palm of his hand. It says, or with the breadth of his hand marked out the heavens. How many of you have ever done measurements like this? You know, your wife says, well, I want it to be, you know, about so far. So you go, well, let's see. That's about that. It's about like that. How many of you have ever done that? You all have. Did you read what Isaiah just said? Isaiah said that the Lord God of heaven does that in the heavens. Carl Sagan's really excited about the breakthroughs in astronomy. Isaiah says that God just marks out light years with his hand breath. If you're concerned today and think, man, I'm not sure I can make it through it. I'm not sure life will ever work again. And I I think I've slid so hard, I'm not going to ever be able to get up. The ultimate divine father in heaven is the one that takes waters in the palm of his hand. So when you look at the ocean, you've got a God who's your tender shepherd, who has that kind of power to put the water just in his palm of his hand. And he's the one that when you look up at those stars and realize that God just measures those heavens with his hand. Notice what else it says. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in his balance? God takes all the Rocky Mountains and he can just weigh, it pictures God, you know, I'm kind of weighing out the the mountains of the earth on, on, on a double balance, just weighing them out. And what it's trying to get across to us is the immensity and the omnipotence of our God. Only it's, it's using, it's talking about God's omnipotence and talking about his power and it related to us. He wants to use the power to shepherd his sheep. That's the incredible thing. He wants to use the power to, to, to shepherd his sheep. Look at verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. A little bit further on, it says in verse 26, Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls each of them by name because of his great power and his mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Verse 25, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows in them and they wither and the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Hitler raises his fist against God. God blows him away. Just And another world ruler is gone. And down through history, you can see one nation after another that rises to a sentence. And Isaiah is saying is the breath of God's mouth speaks and they're just blown away. And what Isaiah 40 is doing, what I want you to feel is you've all heard about how God's omnipotent and how he's changeless and how he's immutable. But what Isaiah chapter 40 is saying, that that's why you can be comforted this morning. That's why you can get through life, because the, the unchangeable God is still there for you, even when everyone else has let you down. The omnipotent God, the God of all strength, is there for you. He never grows weary. He never gets tired. He can always pick you up on the slopes of life when you've fallen. And finally, there's one last thing I want you to give, get comforted by. God can comfort you because his character always stays the same. God can comfort you because he never runs out of strength. He's never impotent. The third reason is God never doesn't have the answer. Every one of us at one time or another in our life need a counselor. I need a counselor. I need your advice. You need mine. There's times when I don't have the answer. I remember when I got my doctorate degree from Dallas Theological Seminary and they threw that big hood over my head. It's a big ceremony. You walk up and, man, I had worked and worked and worked and worked for that. I mean, I, I, that was really, man, my focus for, for nine years of graduate school was on that day. And I never forget, you know, they, they, caught, they turn around, they put this big hood on you. And I really thought I knew something back in 1980. I thought I really, really knew something. Now I realize I don't know much of anything. And the longer that I live, the more I realize I don't, I don't know very much. And the more that I'm not nearly as enamored by human wisdom as I used to be. In fact, I remember when I was younger, you know, I'd go to, some of my friends were counselors. And I would say, man, they've got the answer. And I'd read their book and I'd get all excited about this guy. And now one of the most disconcerting things to me is now, those are my contemporaries, a lot of them. and, and, And one of the things you begin to realize, they're just as messed up as I am. 
And they don't have any more answers than I do, unless it's located in the changeless word of this book. And their marriages fall apart. Some of my friends were what I thought were the greatest counselors in the world. Their marriages caved in. And they were doing seminars on marriage enrichment. That's disconcerting. You feel like saying, man, what in the world is going on? And you can feel like chucking all the thing. Don't! The scripture says that we all need counselors. There's only one being in all the universe who has the answer. Notice what it says in verse 13 of chapter 40. Who hasn't understood the mind of the Lord? Some of you say, well, God, I just can't figure you out. How many of you have ever thought, I think I'm going to go away from God because I think he did something that I don't understand. Anybody ever felt like that? Have you ever prayed, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. I'm walking away from you. I want you to stop and think for a minute. That's the stupidest thing you could ever do. You need to cling to someone that you don't understand because that means that they're God and if you could understand everything about them, they wouldn't be God, you would be. And you make a lousy God and so do I. So who has understood God? You say, well, Dave, I'm not going to believe in God. There's a lot of things I don't understand about him. That should be why you believe in him. Because you don't understand. You finally got in touch with someone whose mind is bigger than yours. That's the idea. Who has ever understood the mind of the Lord? The answer to that is nobody has. Nobody has ever understood the mind of the Lord. Or who has ever instructed him as his counsel? You know what? The Lord God of heaven will never call in to the Irving Christian Counseling or Minerth Meyer Clinic, even though it's a gigantic Christian conglomerate. The Lord God of heaven will never call up. Is Dr. Meyer there? Is Dr. Minerth there? I need an appointment. That's great news. Because every one of us, at one time or another, might need to do that. But God will never need to do that. And that's why I want your ultimate counselor to be the only one that I know who never needs a counselor. No one ever counsels God. God's always the one that counsels us because he's omniscient. His thoughts are infinite. The scripture talks about him knowing what we're going to say even before we say it without controlling us or manipulating us. The scripture talks about us, him knowing our thoughts, not just our words, but knowing our thoughts from afar. And yet he still doesn't manipulate us. Incredible omniscience. You think computers are mind-boggling and what they've been able to do in the modern world. They're nothing compared to God's mind. And that's what Isaiah 40 is reminding us of. He's saying, who has ever understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The answer to those questions is nobody needed to do that. Because he is the one who has all knowledge. And he's the one that designs what's right and what's wrong. The chapter closes with these words. It says, why do you, in verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? Maybe some of you are complaining today. You say, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Maybe you feel today like my sister felt when her husband walked out on her. It'll never be right again. Life will never be worth living. I might as well just end it. That's the way you feel when you go, when you slide in life that badly and when something that terrible happens. And you want to complain, you want to be bitter, but notice what it says. Do you not, do you not know? Have you not heard? And these are the words that God, the prophet, the Lord brings his word to us today. And we close with this. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. And I want you to know, every one of you today, the Lord today is still the everlasting Lord who hasn't changed in his heart. And he'll always keep his promises to you. And he has the power to give you strength when you've fallen. And he has the answer to all of your questions. And he probably won't give you all the answers until he takes you home. He says he's the creator of the end of the earth. He will not grow tired or wearied. And his understanding no one can fathom. So you're not going to figure out all that he's doing. You're never going to understand all that his plan involves for you. There's going to come some time in life where he says, I want you to trust my immutable character. I want you to trust my power to meet your need. I want you to trust the fact that I do know, even when you don't know. And then what will happen? He will give strength to the weary. Are you weary today? The good place to be. He'll give you strength. He'll give strength to the weary. Do you feel weak today? He says he'll give power to the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. 
I share with you about my own skiing and, and how trying to catch Joel, and Joel's a real hot shot skier. But after skiing all day Monday and all day Tuesday and all day Wednesday, on Thursday at lunch, all the adults met together. We were going to stop for lunch, and Joel's this macho young guy. says, I'm not going to stop for lunch. I want to get another hour of skiing. And so he went to the top of the mountain and kept skiing a few runs. I caught up with him later on after my gigantic fall uh, and started talking to him. He said, well, Dad, to be honest with you, I had to stop and get a cinnamon roll. You know why? Because young men get, get hungry, and they grow weary. Joel and I were making the last run down the mountain. Joel's a very good skier. Took off down the mountain. I started chasing him. I was right on his tail. And suddenly down a typical blue intermediate slope, and that's why we were hightailing it so fast, suddenly he caught an edge and fell, and one of his skis went 15 feet up into the air. In fact, he made such an incredible fall that he got applause from the chairlift up above. I mean, one of his skis just shot about as high, about 15, 20 feet in the air. Young men grow weary and they fall. The tendency of the young is to feel like I'm invincible. I have my wedding pictures, and that day will be the ultimate day of my life. I got news for you, it will not be. It will not be. There will still be a hole in your soul that's unfulfilled. And you're all going to change, and life's going to just slowly slip away. It says the young men grow weary, and they can fall. You know what Isaiah closes with? It says, but those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. That's what I'm telling you today. I want you to put your hope in the Lord, because he's the one that can comfort you. Because he never changes. Everyone else in this life will break their word. God won't. My sister's husband walked out on her. Was it the end of my sister's life? No. She was able to be there when her first little granddaughter was born. And as a grandma, she was able to hold little Allie on her lap, this precious little newborn baby. And her daughter, that was just a little kid when her husband walked out on her, a little blonde-headed little girl, grew up and became a woman dedicated to God, found a Christian guy that runs the radio station that blasts truth encounter all over Mormon country every single day. <laughs> It's her husband, Russ, six foot four of him, over 250 pounds, that Tammy's married to. The last time I went to New York State this fall when I taught the Bible Institute, my nephew, Tim, is now a grown man. And he called me up and says, Uncle Dave, I'm going to get off work at five. Mary and I, he married a Mary too. We'll be there and just to please wait and have supper. We want to spend time with you. And I just spent time with Tim and Mary. Beautiful kids, young people dedicated to Christ. Did God keep his promise to them? Yeah. Yeah, he did. The tragedy is that their dad walked away. What a hurt. Totally estranged. Totally a stranger. See, people change. Does God change? No. Can God deliver? Yes. Can God put life together even when you fell so hard it looks like you could never get up? Yes. But you can miss it. Please don't miss it. Please don't trust in a false God. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.